Welcome to another episode of the Yay, Nay or Mare podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And it's a pretty light week this week, with only three films reviewed, only two out cinematically this week, all of which have some level of Oscar buzz surrounding them. We have Yorgos Lanthimos's new film, Poor Things, which is very, very likely to win some Oscars, sure to get some Oscar nominations when they get announced, uh, what, next week? I think it is, or two weeks' time. That'll be next week. That's cool. But anyway, when the Oscar nominations are announced, I fully expect Poor Things to get a boatload. Probably not so much for the other Oscar-basy film, The Boys in the Boat, George Clooney's latest directorial effort, which is one of those films trying to get into the Oscar discussion, but it really doesn't have a hope. Those were the two scheduled releases cinematically this week, which I saw, but I also had an opportunity to watch the documentary 20 Days in Mariupol this week cinematically a couple of months ago i actually paid for a ticket to see 20 days of mariupol over in the watershed cinema in bristol but unfortunately i was very very ill that day and spent all day in bed so i missed my screening of 20 days of mariupol a couple of months ago but there was a screening i could get into for free at the little theater so I went along, since it's the kind of harrowing documentary about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that I would have most likely just done my best to avoid watching if I'd watched it at home on my laptop. So sitting in a cinema screen, being forced to watch it beginning to end was probably a benefit, since it has been added to two separate Oscar shortlist categories. And yes, I'm including it in this episode, even though it's technically a VOD review since 20 Days of Mariupol is available on your streaming service of choice but I did watch it cinematically so I'm chucking it in this episode particularly since it's pretty short anyway so in this episode I will be reviewing the films Poor Things, The Boys in the Boat and 20 Days in Mariupol and without further ado let's get on with today's reviews Cinema Reviews Poor Things is the latest film directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, who is one of the strangest directors to have a major profile in international cinema. He kicked off what became known as the Greek Weird Wave in 2009 with his film Dogtooth, which is one of the most fucked up films ever to get nominated for the International Feature Oscar in recent years. It it is an experience watching Dogtooth. There's some really, really messed up stuff in that film. 
but it was very popular and alongside other directors like Athena Rachel Tsangari and Panos Koutras the Greek weird wave was born but the follow-up to Dogtooth and the international acclaim and success of Dogtooth Alps wasn't so much of a success and quite honestly I don't like Alps very much but Following that, Yorgos Lanthimos has moved into working in the English-speaking world. And his next film after that was The Lobster, for which he got his first Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay, alongside his longtime collaborator Ephthemis Philippou, because technically his nomination for Dogtooth was a nomination for Greece rather than him because Greece submitted it, which they recently changed, and I always thought that was a bit stupid. But anyway, technically, the first Oscar nomination for Yorgos Lanthimos was for Best Original Screenplay for The Lobster. He followed that up with Killing of a Sacred Deer, which was widely acclaimed but didn't get any awards consideration, unlike his next film, The Favourite which was a huge success he was nominated for best director for the favorite and also best picture and this widespread acclaim and success i think it's not insignificant that's the favorite was the first film since his debut feature a mainstream comedy back in Greece called My Best Friend, but this was the first film since then that Yorgos Lanthimos didn't write. Instead, it was written by Tony McNamara and Deborah Davis, who got Best Original Screenplay nominations for The Favourite. And now we have... Poor Things, which once again is written by Tony McNamara, adapting the novel by Alistair Gray, which is set in the 19th century, albeit in the film version, a rather steampunk-inspired version of the 19th century. And we are following the story of Bella Baxter, as played by Emma Stone, who has worked frequently with Yorgos Lanthimos. Indeed, Yorgos Lanthimos already has another film in post-production. And given the timescale, I wouldn't be at all surprised if this new film, Kinds of Kindness, shows up at the Cannes Film Festival this year. And once again, that is co-written by Yorgos Lanthimos and his long-time collaborator, Ephthemis Philippou. But that's beside the point. Bella Baxter, as played by Emma Stone, is a creation of an acclaimed doctor and scientist, Dr. Godwin Baxter, as played by Willem Dafoe, who is hideously deformed, one might even say monstrous, in a gothic-tinged tale clearly taking its cues from Frankenstein, even though the original novel by Alistair Gray is apparently something of a parody of this gothic Frankenstein-esque 
aesthetic. And to some degree, the film is too. But the the book, from what I understand, has more layers of complexity put on top of it than this film does. But anyway, we are in kind of Frankenstein territory. And this hideously deformed Dr. William Dafoe creates Bella, Emma Stone. And in order to document her progress, document her life, Willem Dafoe brings in a younger doctor, played by Rami Youssef, to live with them and document Bella Baxter's progress, and eventually pushes the two younger people together and say, hey, do you want to maybe marry this created woman? And, by the way, that would also mean you would stay here forever in this house basically trapped in a gilded cage but Ram Yusuf is so taken with Emma Stone that this arrangement is agreed upon but in order to make this basically indentured servitude legal you know the fact that if you marry Emma Stone you shall not leave this house a legal contract needs to be written up and the Kaddish lawyer, Mark Ruffalo, shows up in order to do the legal paperwork. And Mark Ruffalo, being the bounder that he is, instantly tries to seduce this woman and succeeds. Emma Stone saying to her putative father, Willem Dafoe, look, you have been so constrictive of me, if you don't let me go, I am going to be miserable to the point maybe of just ending it all. So just let me go. So reluctantly, Willem Dafoe does, and Emma Stone goes off with Mark Ruffalo for a lengthy journey to Lisbon and eventually other places around the world including on a cruise ship where this couple meets up with fellow travellers Jared Carmichael and Hannah Scheiguller, the legendary German actress who worked frequently with Fassbender. She plays an old lady on this cruise ship. And along the way, we also spend time with a Paris madam played by Catherine hunter who was so excellent as the three witches in joel cohen's tragedy of macbeth so as emma stone travels around the world and starts developing her own abilities and own opinions and starts questioning her relationship with the three men in her life her quote-unquote father, Willem Dafoe, who Emma Stone constantly refers to as God, since his name is Godwin, her supposed fiancé, Rami Youssef, and the man she has basically run off with, Mark Ruffalo. And maybe there's some development to be had, but... Where did this woman originally come from? And towards the end of the film, that question is answered. And 
there's complications put in as well. So, this is a film which has a lot of Yorgos Lanthimos's tropes in it. There's frequent use of very distorting lenses, like fisheye lenses, where the centre of the screen is more or less in focus, but everything to the edges is very, very distorted. There's kind of peephole effects, which mimic old-school silent movies. Very strange angles used in this film, very strange lenses used in this film. There's awkward dancing, which is a trademark of Lanthimos. I mean, there's a very, very notable scene in Dogtooth, very notable scene in The Favourite of very awkward, elaborate dancing. There's a scene where someone has food thrown at them, similarly to The Favourite. I mean, that scene in The Favourite made absolutely no sense, but there you go. There's weird moments of surrealism. I mean, as I said, there's steampunk overtones to this with airships and trams going through the sky, you know, hanging trams going through the sky. There's a, a contraption which Willem Dafoe needs to use in order to eat because, I mean, the reason he is so horribly deformed is that his surgeon father conducted experiments on him when he was a child including messing with his digestive system, which means he needs external help whenever he eats, and then burps out huge bubbles of gas, which is kind of disgusting and kind of weird and kind of surreal. I mean, for no reason, the dining chairs that they all sit in are very, very oversized. No reason for that at all. I mean, it, there's... It, you know, incredible visuals in this, including the costume design. I think the costume design for Poor Things, if this doesn't get a nomination for costume design, we riot. Potentially even win. I mean, I think Barbie is the favourite for costume design, but Poor Things, I think, should win because the costumes in this are just so elaborate, so weird. I mean, this is a lot of Yorgos Lanthimos's surrealism, absurdism, and extremity put on screen. And that includes the main thrust of this film, so to speak. And that is sex. I'm not sure I have ever seen a mainstream film which deserved an 18 rating quite so much as Poor Things does. This is a film absolutely overloaded with sex. I mean, the basic thrust of this film is the development and the self-actualization of this character, Bella Baxter, who has basically from first principles, come into the world as an adult woman. And as far as this film is concerned, 
add the first half of the original Alistair Gray novel. I mean, that this is the thing that got changed seemingly between the novel and the screen. And we have a male director and a male screenwriter telling us this, but freedom equals sex. We have this character who the first time that Rami Yusuf sees her, or one of the first times that Rami Yusuf sees her, he describes her in period-appropriate language, but you know, not appropriate anymore, but I'm going to say it anyway. Rami Yusuf describes her as a pretty retard. And that's kind of what we have. I mean, it's like that born sexy yesterday trope. Like an adult innocent woman who knows nothing of the world knows nothing of sex but sooner or later she discovers sex and that's one of the key factors in her growth in her development and one of the key factors which makes her run off with mark ruffalo who she knows is a cad and a bounder but she kind of would like some sex, please. I mean, she has discovered masturbation, and maybe we can do that together. And they do. There's a lot of sex, quite a bit of nudity in this as well. And that's part of the thing. I mean, when you have complete liberty, complete freedom, when you are having the physical reaction to the world, but not necessarily the societal constraints put on your reaction to the world. This is what happens. I mean, it's like the id not being controlled by the superego. This is what I want, and you don't know or don't care that society says you shouldn't sit at the dinner table and masturbate and grab a cucumber and put it under your skirt. But she does that because it feels good. Why shouldn't I do that? And that's kind of the thing we have. And this idea of liberation, of empowerment, fundamentally equates to sex. And there have been arguments made. I mean, I've seen some... I mean, most people have loved this film, and quite honestly, I love this film as well. But some critics have said that this is a very prurient kind of approach, saying that the equality, quote-unquote, in this film, or the freedom, quote-unquote, in this film, is being exploited and not caring about being exploited. And I do kind of see that argument, but I don't necessarily agree with it, because what I think this film is trying to say, and partially what the original novel seems to have been saying, is why not have fun? Why not explore your sexuality? Who cares what society thinks? It is only external forces, particularly in this Victorian period, which present these ideas to you, which provide those things you shouldn't want and shouldn't need, you know, your superego telling you that. It's the external forces which tell you that. So when you don't have those, have at it. And yeah, I think that is 
actually quite liberating, quite empowering. I, I do see it as, as empowering. And right from the start, I mean, Emma Stone says of Mark Ruffalo, you know, I know he's a cad. I know he's a bounder. I know that this is a bad decision, but it is a decision, and I want to make a decision, even if it is a bad one. And Mark Ruffalo just doesn't understand this. I mean, well, hang on, didn't you just elope with me? I mean, you still say you want to go back to Rami Yusuf and marry him? You you have eloped with me. You ran off with me. I'm the, the virile, sexy man. And yes, I can't quite keep up with all your sexual demands, but I'm, you're still with me, aren't you? And I have every right to be jealous when you go off with somebody else. And actually, you don't. So, yeah, I, I do see this as a treatise on empowerment and the lack of restrictions. And when you have freedom, that inevitably equates to sex. I mean, well, that seems to be the thesis of this film. I do think this is another example and we have had many of them on tv and film over the last decade or so of an autism-esque character somebody who doesn't have the usual social filters doesn't equate to the usual social norms just lives their life in their own way a emma stone's philosophy with this you know, very recently developed idea of self and idea of individuality says, I want sex, why not have sex? And doesn't really know or care that you shouldn't actually do that. And that is kind of refreshing. And people like Mark Ruffalo don't know how to deal with it because Mark Ruffalo is the classic cad and or bounder you know, pencil moustache, an accent straight out of the Leslie Phillips or Terry Thomas school, if you are old enough to remember those characters. But, you know, the lascivious, oily kind of character who is so used to getting his own way with women and women throwing themselves at him and then he discards them on his own terms. That when Emma Stone comes along and says, yes, I'll go with you, and, oh, no, you're not interesting anymore. I'm going to go off somewhere else. He doesn't know how to deal with it. And that is refreshing in and of itself. And, yeah, I think this is a really, really good film. I think Emma Stone is excellent. She's already won a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Comedy. And I think she's second favourite to win the Oscar for Best Actress behind Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon, who won Best Actress in a Drama at the Golden Globes. This won Best Comedy Film at the Golden Globes over Barbie, which was a little bit of a surprise. And personally speaking, I think I would take Barbie over this. But it is a legitimate contender. I mean, it had Golden Globe nominations for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Director as well. And both Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe got nominations for Best Supporting Actor. So, yeah, this is a heavyweight Oscar contender, and I fully appreciate why. This is a really, really good film. It does have those interesting ideas 
about liberation and self-determination and how easily that can be equated with sex. It is visually stunning, visually sumptuous. As I said, I think it should win costume design. I don't think it will. But yeah, this is really, really good stuff. And Emma Stone is genuinely brilliant in this. Percy speaking, I think she should win over Lily Gladstone. I don't begrudge Lily Gladstone. It would be fantastic having a Native American actress winning an Oscar. But I think Emma Stone's better. And yeah, we'll have to see. But it's probably going to be Lily Gladstone. But Emma Stone should win an Oscar for this, I think, of the contenders I've seen so far. And I think I've seen most of them. So yeah, this is really, really good stuff. Poor Things is a libertine film with lots and lots of sex, but also lots of ideas. And I think it's great. It should still be in cinemas by the time this comes out. And for me, Poor Things is a yay. Next up, we have The Boys in the Boat, which is the type of film that is being released at this time of year because it is angling to get into the Oscar conversation, but quite honestly, there is no way in hell it is going to get an Oscar nomination, even if it was the best example of its genre ever, it's unlikely to get any Oscar buzz because this is a feel-good, heartwarming, underdog sports biopic. And, yeah... Obviously, there are exceptions to the rule like Rocky, but this is the kind of film that, in general, doesn't get any strong Oscar buzz. Despite the fact it is the latest film directed by George Clooney, who nowadays is just as likely to be found behind the camera as in front of it, And he is working on a script by Mark L. Smith, who started out mostly in the torture porn style of horror movies in the early 2000s with Vacancy 1 and 2 and the atrocious American remake of the extreme French horror movie Martyrs. But then he turned his torture prawn proclivities towards more mainstream and award success because Mark L. Smith co-wrote The Revenant with Alejandro Gonzalez and Yaratu and then continued on into the prestige world by writing George Clooney's last directorial effort, The Midnight Sky, which Quite honestly, wasn't very good, <laughs> but Markel Smith and George Clooney have worked in the past. So now Markel Smith is doing this screenplay, which is adapting the non-fiction book by Daniel James Brown about the 1936 US men's eight rowing team who were the University of Washington rowing eight, who not only managed to beat the 
much, much richer universities from the East Coast of America, you know, the Ivy League and their ilk, but also managed to beat the Nazis in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. A feat which was not at all expected, particularly since these were working class and or at least lower middle class boys who were rowing for the sake of the part-time job which comes with being part of the rowing team because this was 1936 at the height of the depression so these are boys who needed to be in the team in order to you know eat as well as remain students at the University of Washington. And that hunger and that drive took them all the way to an Olympic gold medal. And we are focused mainly on one of these eight rowers, Joe Rance, who was the inspiration for the non-fiction book that inspired this movie, because the Seattle-based journalist Daniel James Brown, his next-door neighbour was the daughter of Joe Rance, and one day Daniel James Brown's neighbour said, hey, do you want to meet my father? He's an Olympic gold medalist, and you know the story of the Depression and winning the gold in Berlin came out. So he is the focus of this film, and is being played by Callum Turner. As we see him dealing with the grinding poverty and homelessness that was common for so many during the Depression, his drive to succeed, his abandonment issues from his father, he was alone since he was 14 years old, given the hard economic times they were living in. We also see him falling in love with an attractive young co-ed or rather re-falling in love they knew each other when they were very small and now they've randomly met up again at university but Callum Turner is repeatedly flirting and eventually dating Hadley Robinson and the group of young men who need to be in this boat is being coached by the taciturn and gruff Joel Edgerton who is sick and tired of losing every year to Cal. And with this group of boys, he thinks he might actually beat Cal and maybe, just maybe, get to the Olympics, since this is an Olympic year. And his very stern demeanour is mollified a little bit by the boat builder for the University of Washington, or the shell builder. I suppose will be more accurate, played by Peter Guinness, who to some degree takes the engineering student Callum Turner under his wing. And looking up Joe Rance on Wikipedia, he did have an engineering degree eventually from the University of Washington and ended up working for Boeing for decades, which is, I think, a very, very natural progression for somebody in the Pacific Northwest. But that's not in this film. This is entirely focused on the 1936 rowing team and the grinding poverty of the depression and the national pride instilled with this men's eight which managed to beat hitler 
And that's basically the issue with this film, if there is an issue, because this is one of those films you know exactly what you're going to get from it. It is an uplifting sports biopic, the underdog movie. You've got the background of the Depression, the background of the rise of fascism in Europe. These poor boys, or or relatively poor compared to, you know, Cornell in Colombia and Syracuse on the East Coast. These kinds of universities, I mean, as Joel Edgerton says at one point, these boys grow up in rowing boats. It's bred into them. These boys have barely picked up a stick. Now, the real-life boat that went to the Olympics wasn't nearly as inexperienced as it is portrayed in the film, but that builds into the whole narrative, the fact that these were underdogs, these were young rowers who weren't expected to even beat Cal, let alone win the US title and then go on to the Olympics. They were not expected to beat the University of California. Uh, And over and over again, we have the unlikely events taking place that need to be overcome. And of course, they are overcome. But we don't really explore any of these themes. We observe them. We understand them. But... Is there any in-depth discussion, any in-depth contemplation of what is going on here? No, we are just seeing the scruppy underdog sports movie play out in front of us, with the additional layer of the budding romance between our protagonist, Callum Turner, and this attractive blonde co-ed Hadley Robinson, who for a girl in 1936, is very, very forward. Uh, I'm not quite sure I buy just how modern Hadley Robinson comes across in this film, but she knows what she wants and she's going to get it. And fair play, but it doesn't really feel like 1936 in, in the romance department. But anyway, we just have all these cliches. I mean, we have the night before the big event Callum Turner randomly meets the father who abandoned him on the street and that sends him off onto a mental spiral out of control we have obstacles being put in the way like the US Olympic Committee all of a sudden says we can't possibly afford to send a men's eight to the Berlin Olympics you're going to have to pay your own way. You know, give us $5,000, which is an absurdly high amount of money in 1936. And, oh no, well, if you know, the University of Washington can't raise $5,000, I'm sure the Ivy League universities on the East Coast will be happy to take your place. You know, the underdog's not expected to win and the American Olympic Committee pushing them aside or attempting to push them to side. Then when they get to Berlin, the German authorities suddenly change the rules and mysteriously the very strong United States 
crew is given the worst lane in the final. I wonder how that happened. You know, those kinds of things, you know, obstacles being put in the way over and over and over again. We also have, you know, typical filmmaking techniques when you have this kind of biopic, this kind of historical story. I mean, at the opening ceremony, our protagonists just so happen to be standing next to Jesse Owens. And they have a chat with Jesse Owens, which I think was uh, a little bit too on the nose. But yeah, it's the structures and the patterns of the underdog sports movie. And nothing really special put on top of it. I mean, yes, the rowing scenes are very, very intense. I mean, they are well shot. You know what's going on, even if you're not very familiar with rowing. You can see. You know, what's going on, you know, the, the coxswain who's a maverick and doesn't always follow his coach Joel Edgerton's instructions. I mean, basically, this coxswain, uh, Luke Slattery, is putting down negative splits, which is a cycling term, but I'm a fan of professional cycling. Uh, and if you go slower or relatively slower in the first portion of a race and then speed up at the end, that's what's called a negative split, and that has become you know, the, the fashion of the day in professional cycling. And that's essentially what they are doing in this men's eight rowing team, which is very, very hard to do. But this is what the University of Washington slash the US national team managed to do. So it, it, the sports aspects are dealt with reasonably well. The politics of you know the fascism in Germany and the hardships of the depression are reasonably well dealt with, but it's just building up to this whole feel-good conclusion, and there's not much more than that. I mean, it's functional. I think that that's the best way I can describe this film: is functional. It does exactly what it sets out to do, and not an iota more than that. And, yeah, that's fine, but don't tell me this deserves to be in any kind of serious Oscar discussion. It's just not that kind of film. It's fine, it's uplifting in the right ways, it's entertaining in the right ways. It's oddly romantic. I mean, I think the chemistry between Callum Turner and Hadley Robinson is actually really, really good. So, yeah, the, the romance side of things works. It's just not the prestige picture it was clearly designed to be. It's functional. And I think that that it tells you what my ratings are going to be, because The Boys in the Boat is out cinematically right now, and it's a meh. It's an absolute categorical middle-of-the-road meh. VOD Reviews So this week I did grit my teeth and attend a screening of 20 Days of Mariupol that randomly showed up on the programme of the Little Theatre here in Bath. Technically this is a VOD review because you can now find 20 Days of Mariupol on your generic VOD platform of choice but 
this was a screening in a cinema, which was probably a benefit because knowing me, if I had watched it on my computer at home, I would have been pausing it every five minutes trying to avoid actually watching it. So just sitting down and being forced to watch it beginning to end was probably a benefit because this is exactly what it sets out to be, a harrowing, devastating, traumatising experience showing the horrors of war, what it is like to be a civilian in the southern Ukrainian port town of Mariupol as the Russians are invading and committing war crimes. No matter how much they try and say this is fake news and everybody's an actor on these pieces of footage and these journalists work for the West anyway, Russian forces committed war crimes in Mariupol and this is the documentary evidence of that. As Mstislav Chernov and stills photographer Evgeny Malaletka are part of a group of Associated Press journalists who on the day when Russia invades Ukraine, or, or the likelihood is that Russia invades Ukraine, Mstislav Chernov and Evgeny Malaletka and others head to Mariupol in order to document the Russian invasion. And that's what they do. Mr. Slav Chernov recorded all this footage and eventually, once he got out of Mariupol after 20 days, he edited this footage together into this film and provided a voiceover in English and gave us an impression of what it was like to live in a war zone for 20 days and it's harrowing it's devastating it's traumatizing it's all those things are made even worse when the russians claim that it's all fake <sighs> this is uh, you know a powerful statement about the horrors of war the devastation of all the traumas of war i mean showing dead bodies, showing dozens of dead bodies, showing dead babies, showing feet which have been blown off and are just now lying in the middle of a hospital room floor, somebody giving birth after the maternity hospital was the subject of a missile attack from Russia, so they had to move from the maternity hospital to the only other functional hospital in Mariupol, which doesn't have a maternity department, but now you have to give birth whilst your foot's been blown off. And some of the victims, some of the pregnant women of that maternity hospital that got bombed by the Russians do not survive. And, yeah, it's... It's a devastating experience. I mean, yes, we were sat in the 
smaller screen at the little theatre here in Bath. And the woman who was sitting directly in front of me, eventually she just tapped out. She was sort of leaning forward, looking at the floor, not looking at the screen, wanting to avoid what was happening on screen. I mean, I think she reached her breaking point when they started showing the dead babies towards the end of this film. And, yeah, she clearly could not cope with it anymore and just avoided the screen. And I don't blame her, quite honestly. I mean, this is the kind of film that if it hadn't been Oscar submitted, if it isn't on the long lists, the 15 film long lists for both international feature and documentary feature, I think it's very, very likely to get at least a nomination for documentary feature, maybe even international, but I mean, different agendas. But yeah, if it wasn't on those Oscar shortlists, I probably would have avoided watching it because I, I know what type of film this is. I mean, yes, it is necessary that these things are documented. It is necessary that with any luck, eventually people will be held to account for the war crimes that were carried out in Mariupol. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I want to sit down in a cinema screen or or sit down in front of my laptop and watch it. I know these things are going on and there's fuck all I can do about it. And that really, really depresses me that these awful, awful things are happening on a regular basis in the world, particularly thanks to Vladimir Putin. And there's fuck all I can do about it. And, yeah, I I don't like being reminded of that. But, you know, I did my duty. I actually watched the film. But, honestly, I'm not sure what kind of response I'm supposed to have to it. I mean, on a technical level, I think interesting choices were made because we see Mr. Slav Chernov shooting these awful, awful things, and we hear his voiceover describing them, and then we see the exact same footage being used in news reports in the West, in America, in Germany, in Britain, whatever. We see the exact same footage we've just seen being used in news reports, which the Russians then claim is fake. So we have the purpose for these pieces of footage that Mstislav Chernov is filming we see its function in society we see the reason why it is being done these news reports but then we equally see as we have these harrowing images being shot we see that kind of the behind the scenes stuff as well as mr Chernov just lets his camera drop to his side because you know, he, he can't cope with what he's seeing anymore. I mean, it's traumatising for him as a person, as well as us as an audience. I mean, he's constantly in the voiceover talking about his two daughters back in Kharkov, uh, and they most likely have had to escape as well and become refugees. But we see this footage both 
used in news reports and also the raw stuff of the person, Mr. Slav Chernov, shooting us and what that does to him. And that's you know, really interesting, really effective, having all different aspects of this footage we as an audience are watching being presented to us. I do think that occasionally the voiceover gets a little bit too much. I think the traumas that Mr. Slav Chernov is describing as well as showing to us, I think he pushes that a tiny bit too hard occasionally. And one thing that I do actually object to in this film is I found the score for this film very, very overbearing. I mean, yes, I think we need to show the traumas and the horrors, and music helps with that. But several times throughout the course of this film, I found the score very, very overbearing, too much. I really thought it was too much. So, yeah, I tone the score down a little bit, tone the voiceover down just a fraction, just a tiny bit. But this is a powerful, harrowing, important, impressive, but harrowing documentary. And I think the best place to leave this review is with a quote from Mr. Slav Chernov himself. I did note this down when I heard it in the voiceover. He says at one point, This is painful to watch, but it must be painful to watch. And that's kind of the mission statement for this film. So, yeah, I mean, I I think this is the kind of project, this is the kind of experience which is completely separate from cinema or or separate from documentary. I mean, it's reality and truth in a very raw and uncompromising way. But is it a film? Is it a documentary? I'm not sure. I I, I think it is a valuable experience. Okay, I think to sum up what I feel about this film, I'm glad it exists. I'm glad all of this was documented, but I don't necessarily feel that I can or should recommend people watch it. If you feel the need to do so, then it is available on VOD platforms. Sooner or later, it's going to show up on either Sky Documentaries or Storyville on BBC4 here in the UK. It's already, I believe, on PBS Frontline in America. So, yeah, you do have the option to watch it if you desire, but honestly, I'm not sure I can recommend you do so. I don't think it's entirely appropriate to give this film a rating, but that is the format I've set myself. So. 
if it's worth anything, I guess I give 20 Days in Mariupol a ma. New releases. Next week at the cinema is going to be a pretty similar week to this episode, given that there's not actually much out at the cinema, and what is out is, to some degree, Oscar Beatty, or at least is on the gold derby lists of Oscar potential. The first is a very major Oscar contender, The Holdovers. The new film from Alexander Payne, reuniting with Paul Giamatti from Sideways, and Paul Giamatti and Divine Joy Randolph have both already won Golden Globes for this film, The Holdovers, and Divine Joy Randolph is the favourite to win Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars as well. So this is one of the few really, really big Oscar contenders still to come out. It stars Paul Giamatti as a misanthropic teacher at a prestigious East Coast boarding school in the 1960s. And since he is not very popular and doesn't seem to have anywhere else to actually go, it is his responsibility to stay at this boarding school over the Christmas holidays with whoever cannot for whatever reason go home and eventually that only means one boy played by Dominic Sessa and this cantankerous teacher and this mildly rebellious student are basically the only people left in this boarding school apart from the staff including Divine Joy Randolph who plays the cook at this prestigious school. And, yeah, doesn't sound amazingly impressive, but it's been getting a lot of good buzz. It's won all those awards already. It premiered at the Venice Film Festival, I think it was, or certainly did the festival circuit. And The Holdovers is considered a very, very big contender for the Oscars. Less of a contender, but having some prestige is the British film The End We Start From, which stars Jodie Comer as a recent mother with a very small baby who needs to escape a completely flooded London following an environmental catastrophe. Seems to be a little bit along the lines of Children of Man, but yes, Jodie Comer in this film, which is an adaptation of a novel by Megan Hunter. Uh, Oh, the screenplay is by Alice Birch, who is a very, very talented screenwriter. And I don't recognise the director, Mahalia Bellow. I think this might be her debut. Yeah, it's a debut feature. She's done some television and some shorts. But, yes, the end we start from. A British film about environmental catastrophe. So, yeah, that's got some buzz surrounding it, but honestly, not a great deal. But the biggest release cinematically next week, I'm not actually going to see. Actually, as I'm recording this, it's already out because it got a Wednesday release. 
But Mean Girls is in cinemas at the moment. They've made a musical of Mean Girls, and then they filmed that musical. So it was a film that got turned into a musical, which in turn has got turned into a film. And they've done a very similar thing with The Colour Purple, and that's out in a couple of weeks. But yes, I'm not going to see Mean Girls at the cinema. What I am going to do is wait for it to come out on home media and do a video comparing the original Mean Girls, which I've never actually seen, with this new remake or sequel, whatever. I think Tina Fey's in both of them and, of course, wrote it. But yes, Mean Girls is out cinematically, but I'm not actually going to watch it yet. I'm going to wait for that to come out on home media and do a reaction video to both versions of Mean Girls. And released streaming this week. We also don't have a great deal. There's the small British film On The Line, which I talked about a couple of months ago, but its release got pushed back into the new year. It sounds really, really fascinating. It's set in the past, I think, the 1950s or 60s, where a telephone operator on one of the Channel Islands, I believe Alderney, a very, very small place with a one-person telephone exchange in the 1950s or 60s, is on the other end of the line as a potential crime, a potential kidnapping is going on. So, very much like the Danish film The Guilty, which got remade with Jake Gyllenhaal. But it looks absolutely fascinating. As far as I can tell, there is only ever one person on screen, this one telephone operator, trying to figure out what's going on on the other end of phone calls. So, yeah, that's exactly my kind of thing. And once I've finished with my best of 2023 lists and my Oscar deliberations, I think that's going to be a very high priority next time I rent things off the Google TV store. So yes, On The Line is out this week. And on Netflix, there's only one film that mildly interests me. It's an anime called Maboroshi, where... An explosion at a steelworks has somehow, for some reason, created a time bubble. And in order to maintain order and maintain the balance in the universe, it is an edict that nobody should ever, ever change. Because once this bubble bursts, we need to go back to exactly where we were. So. Nothing can change. But of course, teens fall in love and stop breaking rules, which seems to be a, a pattern in anime. I, mean, I really didn't like that aspect of weathering with you. But yes, this anime film is available on Netflix. I might watch it, although it doesn't honestly appeal too much to me. I might even add it on to my Netflix animation special, which I'm currently in the process of working on but yeah not a lot being released in the early weeks of january so the next cinematic episode which 
probably will be the next episode in this feed. More than likely, we'll only be reviewing the cinematic films, the holdovers, and the end we start from. The To Watch List As I briefly mentioned, what I'm currently working my way through on the streaming side of things is a selection of Netflix animated features which ended up on the official eligible list. There are five such films available and I will be ticking them off over the coming days with any luck. We have the long-delayed sequel, Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, the surprisingly positively reviewed Adam Sandler animation, Leo, the French film version of a successful cartoon series, Miraculous, Ladybug and Cat Noir, the movie, the Chinese-American animation, The Monkey King, and The Magician's Elephant, which has been at the bottom end of my list for about a year now. And once I get through those five animated films, and potentially also Mabaroshi, if I can be asked, I think my highest priorities after that on Netflix are going to be Maestro, which looks like a really, really strong contender for Oscars, as does the documentary American Symphony, and I also better check out the new David Fincher film, The Killer. So those are probably the next films up on the list. Oh, and also the other documentary, still a Michael J. Fox movie, which I skipped at the cinema, but is out on Apple TV+. Plus. But yes, I've got over a dozen films which I still need to tick off. But at the moment, those are my highest priority. The Ace. Leaving aside the importance and the necessity of 20 Days in Mariupol, the only film in this episode I actually recommend you watch, and therefore the only yay, is Poor Things, which I think is excellent. Emma Stone is fantastic. I think she's going to be my personal choice for who should win the best actress oscar this year over lily gladstone i mean of all the contenders i've seen and i've seen basically all of them except carrie mulligan in maestro and ingenue ellis taylor in origin so maybe those two will overtake it but i really do doubt it and for me emma stone deserves the oscar because she is outstanding in this film having this attitude of development starting from very very base beginnings to self-actualization i found it interesting i I saw an interview with her and she said that this is a character without shame and that's really interesting because this is somebody who has never had shame you know the the kind of societal expectations pressed upon her which would lead to polite society and good manners and all that kind of stuff. So to have a character who just ignores all that, and also 
is unashamed about the fact she really, really likes sex, then that's fascinating. And I think this film in general is fascinating. The visuals are stunning. The use of very artificial staging, the use of very unusual lenses on his cameras from Yorgos Lanthimos makes this a really surprising and a really affecting visual feast as well. As I said, I think the costume design is excellent and should win the Oscar, even though it probably won't. And yeah, this is remarkable. I really, really liked Poor Things. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And for me, it is a yay. So the next thing in this feed will most likely be the next cinematic episode where I will be reviewing the holdovers and the end we start from. But I am also working on my Netflix animation special with those five, possibly six Netflix animated films all reviewed at the same time. So those are what's happening on this audio feed or my video feed. I'm still working on charmed videos and working over and over again to get them past the copyright protections, but I will not be defeated. So yes, you can check that out at Yay Nay or Mare. I'm basically abandoned TikTok. I haven't posted anything on there for ages, so I think you can ignore that. And for that matter, I haven't really posted anything on Twitter slash X either. So yeah, you can follow me on those if you want, but it's probably not worth it. But do check out my YouTube channel at Yay Nay or Mare. And uh, yeah, I guess that is where I should leave you since I'm already kind of giving spoilers for my exit speech but in any case this has been a presentation of the yay nay or Mare podcast i've been your host connor gaisley coming to you from bath in the southwest of england email is yay at gmail.com and find me on youtube at yay nay or Mare. and i will see you next time where i shine a light on cinema both obvious and obscure.